Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I'm Ross Furukawa, and I'm here with the editor of the Daily Press, Matt Hall. What's up, Matt? Hey, how's it going? I am well. We are back. Uh, this is kind of a really interesting podcast this week. Uh, Matt, you got to speak to a local resident who happens to be a writer uh, by the name of Andrew Gumble. So uh, tell me a little bit about what you guys talked about. Uh, so Andrew Gumble is a reporter um, who, who works on all kinds of different topics. He happens to be a Santa Monica resident, you know, kids in the schools and involved in some stuff around town. And he has written a couple of uh, you know, synopsis, overviews, uh, long form pieces about the aftermath of the May 31st riots. Um, I say aftermath, like looking into what happened and looking at the responses and who did what and, and what should have, shouldn't have happened. Um, and so he's, he's written a couple of those pieces. So we, we had a, a long conversation with him about those stories and, and what he's learned so far. Okay, great. The, his, his written pieces are certainly long, right? They're, they're yep. encapsulating the whole event and he obviously put a lot of time into it. So uh, we're excited to talk to Andrew. Uh, let's get into it. All right, folks. Uh, today we are here with Andrew Gumbel, who is a Santa Monica-based uh, journalist and author. Um, Andrew, thank you very much for being here with us today. Um, Andrew it has come to, you know, no, maybe, many people may know him anyway, but he's come to local notoriety recently because he's written a couple of very well-researched pieces into the May 31st riots and the aftermath, and he's going to talk to us about those today. So, Andrew, thank you very much for being here. Um, why don't you take a couple minutes to tell people, you know, who you are and uh, how you got here to Santa Monica. Sure. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, I am, I've been a journalist for a long time. I worked internationally for Reuters, an international news agency. I came to LA to be a correspondent for a British paper originally, uh, The Independent. More recently, I've been writing a lot for a different newspaper, The Guardian, which also has a big web presence here in the United States. I write for local publications. I've written books about criminal justice, about elections, about higher education most recently. So I, I write about a lot of different things. Um, I've lived in Santa Monica since 1998. Uh, my children, my two older children have been through the public school system here. My, my third child is still in that system. So I'm very invested in the community, have a lot of friends here. Um, I do not generally write much about Santa Monica, um, but May 31st was something else for me as it was for so many other people in this community. And, you know, over and above the things that I saw and experienced on the day, which were fairly limited because I have a then eight-year-old, um, we went for a bike ride in the afternoon and it was clear that things were not all right, not safe, and the police were nowhere to be seen. So we went straight home. The thing that really got me going on investigating what had happened actually came the next morning when um, the police chief, Cynthia Renault, a number of members of the city council, uh, gave a news conference at the entrance to the pier. And the tone of that news conference struck me as being really quite disturbing. Uh, people were calling it a bright and beautiful day. They were saying, you know, this is a wonderful community. And there was a sort of disconnect between the calamity that had just befallen us and this sort of oddly upbeat tone the next morning, um, which, you know, was in part because the community had come out with brooms and, and um, dustpans and so on to clean up, which was indeed very heartening and, and a real testament to the spirit of this community, but completely disregarded the extraordinary damage and the sheer shock that many residents had felt the day before that their police department was not on hand to stop rampant criminality from going unchecked. 
Gotcha. So you were inspired by the press conference, and that's led you to two stories, correct? Uh, one several weeks ago, and then another one this week. Um, just for folks who may that's not, true. You know, for folks who might not have read um, the first piece, wh- why don't you give us give us a brief rundown of of the first article, and then we'll talk. We'll get into details about the second. Sure. So, you know, after that news conference, I put in public records requests for as much information about what had happened that day as I could. And I tried to be as smart about the things I asked for as, as I knew how, based on my experience um, doing FOIA requests to the FBI and, and other things earlier in my career. Uh, it took a while for that documentation to come back. Um, then over the summer, I was offered interviews with Lane Dill, the acting city manager, um, I talked to a number of members of city council, and then I started, you know, digging around, talking to other people, some of them willing to be named, some of them not. And by November, I was ready to write my first piece. And the findings were essentially that, you know, whatever you thought about how bad it was that day, in many ways, it was worse. Um, it became apparent that, uh, the police were woefully understaffed that day. I never got a final figure on how many were deployed on the morning of the 31st. I heard from a number of sources, um, and Chief Renault confirmed this in her public statements that it was five times the usual deployment, and that's usually eight to ten officers. So we're looking at about 45 officers. Chief Renault later said, no, no, it was closer to 70. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, the other thing that was really shocking that I got from eyewitness testimony from two council members, uh, Terry O'Day, who got voted out in November, and Greg Moreno, who, who resigned for other reasons in June, um, was that two of the four city captains, uh, Captain Jacob and Captain Covarrubias, had been on the corner of Force in Colorado while the looting on Fourth Street was in full swing, could see it from where they were, and made a choice that they were not going to do anything to police it. Now, there could be any number of reasons for that to do with resources as they were then deployed, other emergencies that they were dealing with at the time. But what I heard from a number of sources additionally to that, and it was not contradicted by Chief Renault, is that they had decided ahead of time that shoplifting up to $950 worth of merchandise is considered a misdemeanor under California law. They regarded what was going on as a misdemeanor offense. They completely failed to understand that this was an organized operation. And they made a decision. They didn't have time for misdemeanors, and they weren't going to pursue it. And that was the beginning of the downhill slide that went on for the rest of the day. Because, of course, once word got out that you could go into Santa Monica and help yourself to whatever you wanted, and no one would do a thing to stop you, um, with notable exceptions, I should say. There were obviously interventions by the police at different times. Um, that encouraged many more people to come into town in the course of the afternoon. And after the freeway was closed, they came in on surface streets. And we saw this mayhem carry on well into the early evening. And the National Guard that should have been there in the early afternoon and was delayed for reasons that I'm yet to get to the bottom of, only showed up at about 8 o'clock. And the Sheriff's Department showed up at about the same time and things slowly got under control, but you had you know, six or seven of un- six or seven hours of uncontrolled criminality in in the city, and based on people I know from you know my experience with, with with other cops in other places, you know, one of my first questions was, was this inevitable? Was this something that no police force could have confronted? And the emphatic answer that came back was, absolutely not. You could have planned for this. You could have defended the city. You could have made sure you had enough people in place. This is a foreseeable disaster. There was. Endless traffic on social media about people coming to Santa Monica. There have been incidents in the previous nights in other parts of the LA area. This should have been anticipated. This should have been stopped. 
um, maybe there could, you know, some of it would have been uh, some some breakages and, and other incidents would have been inevitable. But criminality unchecked on this scale was something that reflected very poorly on the leadership of the Santa Monica police and possibly on other leaders in and, the city. And, and so, you know, getting to the, to the root of, the, of what the story was about. So no one disputes anything you've just said, right? Like we were all there. We all saw that. So the question is right. why, right? Why? So what, what were the whys that you that you found through your reporting? What, why did that occur? Well, I didn't necessarily get answers to the reasons why things occurred. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you that in my subsequent reporting, it's clear that there are sort of, broadly speaking, two camps pointing the finger at each other. And I'm not in a position to do the interviews, look at the internal information to determine which of those two groups is correct. But, you know, essentially... There's a camp that wants to blame it all on Chief Renault, and there's a camp that wants to blame it on one or more of the captains. Um, what I found out at the time that, that that I can be sure of, you know, not so much the why of it, but the what of it. Uh, we know that Chief Renault was out of town in the week leading up to May 31st to attend her daughter's high school graduation in Northern California. That graduation ceremony was on the Thursday. She didn't come back to Santa Monica until Sunday morning. Uh, the chief of the fire service was out of town. The head of dispatch was out of town. A lot of people were not, you know, in place. Um, I do not know why they did not come back or why they were allowed to stay away. You know, I don't know the mechanics of that, but I do know that they weren't there. Uh, and, we know. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but, but so one of the things that I think you, your reporting has suggested is that the, the, the why is essentially a failure of planning and imagination, right? Like that's, that seems to be one of the through lines that not only people didn't believe it would happen, right. You know, and, and then they failed to plan and adapt once it did happen. And, and that's I, exactly right. And I think that's that one the, of the things that you, your reporting has concluded, or I say concluded shown, highlighted, suggested is that it, it seems like the fault is lying with the police department as opposed to other kinds of agencies or individuals in the city, right? And I'm, I mean, I'm summarizing a little bit, but do, do you think that's accurate, that it's, it was the police department who failed to understand the intelligence and adapt? And, and I ask that because at the time, and this continues to this day, there are folks who contend and say things like the city council ordered people to stand down or that the, the city manager told them where to go and how to deploy um, and so it seems like your reporting suggests that the, the, the root cause is with the police department. Do you think? I, that- I think that's right. Yes, there are a number of fanciful, rather conspiratorial ideas out there that do need to be knocked down. Uh, the city council has no jurisdiction over the police department, so they certainly didn't do anything uh, nefarious. Um, you know, the, the role of the acting city manager is, is is a little more open to question because you know she has aligned to the police department. She has ultimate budgetary authority over them, you know. Um, but certainly, I think the place to start is with the police. And when I talk to people who are police experts, one of whom went on the record of former Santa Monica police captain who, who successfully prevented something similar occurring during the uh, Democratic National Convention that took place in Los Angeles in 2000. Um, but, you know, others said, you know, what you would do is you would think about closing off streets. You would have rapid reaction uh, groups of police who could go in and make arrests. You would have mobile fencing that you could use to block off people so that they couldn't escape. 
Uh, you could use city buses. You could use garbage trucks in order to block streets, in order to block freeway exits. You don't have to wait for this California Highway Patrol to close the freeway for you. These kinds of basic nuts and bolts tactical approaches that police forces use you know, across the country and probably across the world, um, there seems to have been a lack of awareness or willingness on the part of those in charge at the time, whether that was Chief Renault from a distance or her deputies on the ground. Um, and, you know, from the correspondence that I saw in response to my public records requests, you saw Lindsay Cole, um, who is in charge of, um, um, uh, you know, emergency operations in the city offering fencing, offering big blue buses, you know, already the night before. So she was ready. Um, but something went wrong. And I don't know what that something is because I'm not privy to all. Sure. And in and, and your reporting, did you find anything regarding uh, the... Probably uh, never asked for it. Right. So in, in your reporting, did, did you find anything that reflects a, a priorities related to the peer and the police department's decisions to, um, for lack of a better term, fortify their position at the pier while the looting was occurring downtown? There was clearly a decision to protect the pier and to protect the Third Street Promenade. And by the way, the police department did that very successfully. Gotcha. So br brief pause from meaty conversation for a second here. Um, you're breaking up a touch on me, and I just want to make it, you know, did, if you moved around at all, I just just one of those weird electronic interference things started to creep in there. Um, okay, so move, moving on, you know, you've done a lot of reporting. So you, you did the first story um, that sort of highlighted those issues. But the, the most one of the things I just alluded to is the fact that we're supposed to get an after action report down the line, right, in April. And there's a bunch of information that we're told will be available when we get to that point. Um, and the reason we're waiting on April for that is that the police department said, um, again, paraphrasing, but essentially they said, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. We don't have the ability to do our regular jobs and write this very detailed report. And that statement didn't come out until several weeks after they had supposed to have already been working on it. And the end, the end result was the city hired a private company to compile information and present this report that won't be out until April. Um, in your most recent article, you you have information that, if not contradicts some of those statements, certainly shines them in a different light. Is that that correct? That's correct. Um, so the timeline, as I've been able to reconstruct it, with you know filling in the gaps that, that with information that was not previously available, um, is that in early June, city council, led by council member Sue Himmelrich, now the mayor. Uh, pushed very hard for the police to conduct an after-action review. Uh, it was agreed that they would finish this and present it uh, sometime in early August. I think the first deadline was the 7th, I think on push to the 17th. And, and thereafter, we were told they were unable to pull anything together that was useful, and so we have to take another approach, at which point Council Member Himmelrich, together with two other Council Members, Terry O'Day, and, and, and um, Kristen McCowan uh, pushed for the city to open a procurement process to hire an outside firm to both the immediate after-action report and a longer uh, inquiry into you know the root causes of what had gone wrong and what we might be able to do in the future to fix it. Um, now, this timeline gets contradicted because what I discovered is that in mid-June, so very shortly after the city council directed, you know, said they wanted an after-action report, um, 
Cynthia Renault approached two former sheriff's deputies working uh, as a private consultancy called Field Command. Uh, they were hired sub- subsequent to a spending review by, by city officials, including the city attorney, um, and worked with um, somebody in Chief Renault's office, Lieutenant Joseph Cortez, to produce this after-action report. So, you know, one of the first things that I found out was not as true as it sounded is it wasn't true that the police were unable to produce an after-action report. There was a team working on it. They had it in hand, and by early August, they hadn't quite finished, uh, but could have produced a plausible report from everything I gather, um, you know, in fairly short order. But a few things happened to, to stop that. The first thing I heard um, directly from one of the one of the former sheriff's deputies in field command, his name is Sid Heal, a very well-respected person around time as, as a law enforcement expert. Um, he told me that, you know, in his dealings with Chief Renault, she didn't want things in writing as much as possible. She was happy to hear the unvarnished truth of what had gone wrong. She was happy to get recommendations from him and his colleagues, but she did not want them in writing. Uh, the second thing was that they typically, when they work on these after-action reports, have a sort of military-style structure of introducing an issue, having a discussion of that issue, and then producing recommendations based on that issue. Um, Sid Heal and his colleague, uh, Richard Odenthal, were told, that's not going to work. We don't want that format. That's too specific. So they had pages and pages of typewritten notes um, that talked in great detail about what had gone wrong, how they thought it should be fixed, who was responsible, and according to Sid Hill, they, they named names, they were very specific about who they felt had, had done things wrong, and they saw leadership problems from the lieutenant level up within the police force. Um, none of those notes really saw the light of day, except in a heavily redacted form. Sid Hill's term to me was that they were, quote, paraphrased, unquote, by Lieutenant Cortez. Lieutenant Cortez then produced a document which he emailed both to the chief police and to Lane Dill on August 5th. I then heard from a separate source who was familiar with Lane Dill's thinking that she was so appalled by the shoddy nature of what she saw that she, quote, threw up over it. I think that was a metaphorical term. Um, and subsequent to that, you know, decided that this, Messi's light of day, and she either did not know that Field Command had detailed notes or was not interested in those detailed notes and doing something with them. I don't know which because she wouldn't tell me. She didn't contradict when I told her about you know this account of, of, of the report as it was given to her and, and her reaction. She did not contradict any of that. She didn't challenge any of that. Um, then on August 25th, which was the date that the three council members said, you know, this isn't good enough, we need to hire an outside firm, it actually went in two stages to that meeting. The first thought was, you know, we need to bring in outside people to help the police pull together their material. Uh, neither Dill nor George Cardona, the city attorney who knew said a word about it. Um, so, you know, you can draw your conclusions about whether that made uh, Sue Hilmerich, who, who talked along these lines, um, you know, look foolish or not. Um, and, you know, um, so there, an opportunity was missed, I think, you know, to, to examine what field command had concluded and to decide whether or not it was useful for both the city and the community to know. 
Um, so, you know, what you make of that, how angry you get about that, how much you feel that, that the city council and others in the city were misled, you know, obviously that's a matter of interpretation, but those are the facts as I found them. The other aspect of it that I want to mention quickly is that when I spoke to Lane Dilg over the summer, she told me that the police was beginning to make reforms to its intelligence gathering operations, to its rapid response capacities and, and other aspects of its, of, of its workings. Uh, what I didn't know then, but have gathered since, is that Field Command specifically pinpointed those things and had made recommendations verbally. Um, and I don't think it's unreasonable to surmise what they verbally recommended to Chief Renault was verbally passed on to Lane Dog, and it was on that basis that she told me that these things were happening. In other words, the field command was involved in the process that enabled the police to change their practices. The part that may be troubling is that this was supposed to be an open pub process, and the public didn't hear about it until I was given the tip off after my first piece ran did a public records request and found out that indeed Field Command had been hired and, and all the other details that I've just laid out to be followed. Did, were you ever able to see the, the Field Command report? I was not. So uh, the city did not volunteer it when I, when I asked um, in the public records request, which I think is in keeping with their policy that if the, if, if the document is not final and not an official report, they're not going to um, disclose drafts. And Phil told me that he could give it to me in either the report or the notes because they were per the contract, the property of the city of Santa Monica, so he, he couldn't do that. So, so what we know about what's in that report is basically the authors have summarized it to you and sort of given you the, the roadmap of what it said, um, but some of the specifics... Not exactly, no. Um, they gave me the mechanics of how everything came about. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, the reason I know that they criticized leadership from lieutenant level up and made those other criticisms about intelligence gathering and other aspects um, is thanks to a different source who, for reasons of confidence, you know, reasons sure, of, sure. all kinds of reasons, did not want to be named. And so I guess what I'm getting at there is is we know the outlines of what was in that report, but we're still, the, the specifics are still unknown, right? We're, we're still, the specifics. That's, that's of, correct. Yeah. Who, who, who. That's the, correct. Uh, and, you, and, and I think it's important to say that, you know, Sid Heal and, and Richard Odenthal have a good reputation. They have conducted many after action reports, you know, either on their own or in conjunction with other city police departments. Um, you know, there is reason to believe they know what they're doing. Um, that said, Sid Heal told me uh, that he's personal friends with Cynthia Renault. He told me that he raised that issue with her at the time that she approached him. And she assured him she wasn't going to, you know, pull him back in any way. She wanted to hear the unvarnished truth. It was only subsequent to that that she said nothing in writing. And the other things I already told you, and I think it's a legitimate question whether this is an appropriate hire given their personal relationship. Sure. And so... So we're, we're, that's a lay of the land to this point, right? And so at this point, Cynthia Renault has already left the city. You know, Lane Dilg has announced she's going to leave the city. What what do you think should happen now? So I get we're now we're leaving from what you know in the journalistic practice into asking you to speculate a little bit, right? But you've done a lot of research on this. You you certainly have a large knowledge base. Given where right. we're at now, different different council members, impending vacancy at the city manager position. Vacancy, or you say vacancy, we have an interim police chief, but 
you know, what do you think should happen now? Um, well, I can tell you what I anticipate to happen next, which is maybe a more comfortable question for a sure. journalist rather than advocating for what should happen. Um, I do know that my reporting has caused considerable consternation, including among members of current members of the city council. Um, I don't know what they're going to do or what they're going to propose or what they're going to advocate. Um, but I anticipate that they will take some action and I will be reporting on it as it unfolds. Um, I do know also um, from Lane Dilk that the command material has been supported to Mike Janaka and his team at OIR Group. Um, so they will have an opportunity to compare notes. Um, I'm not 100% clear if what has been passed on to them to date includes those that were not included in what was passed off the line. Um, but Mike Schnack and his team are certainly aware of the existence of those notes now because they've seen my piece and obviously have an opportunity to ask to see them if they haven't already. Um, so, you know, in terms of process, I think we're not going to get any kind of formal, detailed analysis of the events of May 31st until the OIR report comes out, which we're expecting in April at the earliest. Um, so we're going to have to wait a little bit. In terms of political accountability, I can't tell you what, if anything, is going to occur. Um, but it does strike me um, as likely that questions will be asked about what happened, what should have happened, who's responsible for you know, missing an opportunity to have an early insight that was shared with the public about what had happened on May 31st. Gotcha. So yeah, I guess I guess that's that's where we're at, right? I, I understand not wanting to speculate. And I, I totally I totally get that. I just think it's it's interesting that normally in a situation like this, you would the the heads would roll phrase would come out, right? And I just think what's interesting is we preemptively lost the police chief and going to lose the city manager. And I just I think it's an interesting point in time where the city council is going to be presented with this information while they're trying to hire the top leadership of the city, right? And I, it's an interesting point to think about how that's going to affect those hiring decisions. And I'm also interested, and this is just personal interest, in the kinds of, how that is, this information is going to influence the kinds of candidates who are going to want those positions, right? Like, I think that's a I think that's an unintended or potentially unthought about consequence of this. Uh, we would call it a fiasco, a reaction, a failure, whatever you want to call it, right? There's folks out there who are looking at this and thinking about, do they want to be our police chief, right? Do they want to be our city manager? Um, and I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that implication plays out. Um, and I guess, I guess right. I'm well, not asking you to speculate on it too, but I'm just saying that's one of the things that I'm interested in looking at. No, and I can I can speak to both of those things, actually, you know, both the police chief position and the city manager position. So, you know, where the police chief is concerned, you know, I have heard quite a bit of criticism of the decision by Lane Dilg again to rehire Jacqueline Seabrooks, the former chief, as the interim chief. And, and the reason for that criticism is that she was responsible for beginning the uh, promotional uh ladder of many of the people who are directly below her. And in fact, um, Derek Jacob, who was uh, a captain on May 31st and deputized to Cynthia Renault while she was out of town, has been promoted to deputy chief. 
um, from what I gather, his name was top of the criticism list in, in Sid Heal and Richard Odenpohl's um, notes. Um, so that raises a question, you know, is he a protege of, uh, of Jacqueline Seabrooks? And if he is, and if there's a problem with that, and I'm not saying there is, I'm not saying one party is correct or another party is correct. But, you know, if, if we're entertaining the notion that there may be real issues with his performance on May 31st and Jacqueline Seabrooks comes in and promptly promotes him, you know, what does that say about the decision to hire her? That's the nature of the criticism I'm hearing. So, you know, in terms of a new chief, they're going to have to look very carefully at who's in the ranks, you know, what mistakes are made in, in, in hiring and promoting certain people, uh, how you correct that, how you reverse certain things if necessary, and so on. And that's going to be a very tough job, I would, I would submit. Um, so that's a challenge uh, in terms of hiring. In terms of the, the, the structure of the civilian leadership of the city, you know, one thing that's become very obvious to me as a Santa Monica but also as a reporter looking into this is that there's a coziness among the people who run our city, you know, between the city council members, uh, the staff, the city manager, they don't like to rock the boat. They don't like to be seen to be openly pointing fingers at each other. And I do think that that's a problem because when something arises that is not okay and no one's willing to, you know, put their head above the parapet and say so, I think we do have a problem of civilian, uh, uh, you know, democratic accountability, let's call it that. Um, and I also think there's a structural issue that has you know, become very obvious to me, which is you essentially have a single point of failure in the city manager's office. The, you know, where, when it comes to the police particularly, let's talk about that, you know, council can observe, they can have opinions, they can call for things like after-action reports, but they have no jurisdiction over the police. They can't hold hearings and summon members of the police department to come and testify, for example. So they are reliant on the city managers to do the managing of the police for them. So again, a single point of failure. And I think, you know, you can, whatever people think of Lane Dillard's performance, you know, she has a tremendous amount on her plate in that respect. And the buck stops with her in every conceivable way. Um, and is that an appropriate way for the city to run itself? You know, I think that's a question not only for Santa Monica, for many small cities that have a city manager style uh, leadership structure. You know, is this a way of running a city that gives citizens the democratic accountability they need? I think that's a question that would be well worth asking, you know, going forward. And what you do about it, I'm not sure. Again, I'm about asking questions more than advocating solutions. Sure. And, and while we won't get into this too much right now, but the city has um, started a new commission, right? We have a planning commission, we have ARB, we have all these commissions. They've started a public safety commission, right? That's supposed to be some sort of oversight body related to the police department. Um, but we don't know how that's going to play out. We don't know, you're right, brand, brand spanking new. No one's seen it. Um, it's not fully staffed yet. We don't know how that commission is going to play out in terms of these issues. Um, but there might be an opportunity there for some of the discussion you had just referenced, right? Like maybe that's a place where you could get some public discussion going, but we don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see. Right. I think that's right. And, you know, obviously there's a model in, in, in the city of LA with, with the police commission that has oversight over the LAPD. It's been in place since, you know, shortly after the 92 riots. Um, it plays a very important role. Um, but it's you know, the issues that are tend to be rather different in LA and in Santa Monica and tools the, the different commissions have 
they may not also turn out to be very different. So I think, you know, we need to have a conversation about what are the needs for civilian oversight of the police department, you know, and maybe other parts of the city too, and how can we be responsive to those needs? And, you know, this is a city that has a lot of very smart people in it, a lot of very active people in it. You know, I'd see Santa Monica deserve a civilian leadership and a civilian oversight system that is commensurate with the sophistication um, and the commitment of its residents. And I'm not sure we have that right now. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, like I say, we're bumping up against our little, our time limit here for for folks who who like to like to listen to the podcast while they not commute anymore, but evening walk or <laughs> briefly. Um, so one of the things I always want people to give people an opportunity to do is, you know, is there what are you looking forward looking forward to in this context is the wrong phrase. What is it that you're watching next? Right. What's the next shoe to drop in this story? And you don't have to give us a lot of details, but just roughly speaking, where where is it going next? I say, um, I saw that again, sorry. Um, what I expect to happen next is I think we are going to hear some kind of uh, coherent response from at least some members of the current digital council to what I've reported and what it says about accountability and um, corrective action in the wake of the events of May 3rd. But what that's going to look like, I don't know. Um, but this is what I expect to be the next stage in in following the question terms of what has occurred since May 31st. We're all waiting for this independent report that's going to come out in matter of months. Gotcha. All right. Well, Andrew Gumbel, thank you very much for taking the time to be here with us today. We we appreciate it. Um, like I say, we'll, we'll keep talking and make sure that... that any, any more reporting you do will give people a chance to hear about. Um, do you have uh, a website or is there a plug to a Facebook page or is there something you want to tell people to go to if they want uh, more information about you? My website is just andrewgumble.com. That's U-M-B-E-L. And I have articles there, details about the books I've written and so on and so forth. Um, I am also on Twitter, although I'm in frequent Twitter, at andrewgumble. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us today on Inside the Daily Press. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. Music for the Inside the Daily Press podcast is brought to you by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an LA jam band that has been playing live since 2002. Regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. To find out where and when you can hear them live, head to thebrigband.com.